Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The praising of your name and the fellowship of the saints. There is nothing more beautiful than that. It's like the psalm that David read, that how pleasant that is. Nothing on this earth can compare those two things. I pray, Lord, that you would take your word this morning, anoint your servant, and take your words and drive them into the hearts of your people. Let it make a difference in our lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen. The Watergate scandal was a major political scandal that occurred in the United States in the 1970s as a result of a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. The affair began with the arrest of five men. The FBI connected cash found on the burglars to a slush fund used by the committee for the re-election of President Nixon's campaign. In July 1973, as evidence mounted against the president's staff, including testimony provided by former staff members, in an investigation conducted by the Senate Watergate Committee, it was revealed that President Nixon had a tape recording system in his office and he had used it to record many different conversations. And after a protracted series of bitter court battles, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the President had to hand the tapes over to the government investigators to which he ultimately complied. Now recordings from these tapes implicated the President revealing he had attempted to cover up the questionable activities that had taken place after the break-in. And so, facing near certain impeachment in the House of Representatives, an equally certain conviction by the Senate, Nixon resigned his presidency on August the 9th, 1974. But that was not the first attempt to cover up mistakes. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is one of the greatest cover-up attempts of all time. But just like Watergate, it too also fails. In fact, we could call chapter 11 Palace Gate. Look at verse 5 with me. We'll be spending most of our time on verse 5, so don't freak out. I'll make sure you make the cracker barrel. It says, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. I want you to look at that word conceived. I've had Lisa include a passage from the New Testament that gives us the ultimate progression of sin in a human life. And I want to take a little time to unpack and break apart those verses because I think it's important in exposing the fallacy that sin is not as deadly 
as it truly is. Look at verse 14 in that James passage. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Verse 14 begins by telling us what happens in our hearts when we are tempted. The fact is brought out very clearly here in this James passage. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. Here we find two illustrations from the sports of hunting and fishing, neither of which I can do very well. God had me in mind when he made Kroger's. But the term drawn away carries with it the idea of setting a bait or a trap. The word entice in the original Greek means to set a hook. We all know that fishermen have to use bait. No fish is going to bite a bare hook. The whole idea is to hide and to disguise the hook or the trap. Likewise, Satan does not hand us a full description of their frustration, the failure, the separation from God, the broken hearts and the broken homes, the drug rehabilitation center, the unwanted pregnancy, or whatever the end result of our sin would be. He suggests only the pleasure of the moment, and he always leaves the impression that this time no one is going to get hurt. This time we are going to get away with it. Now you and I face temptation every day of our lives, but there is somewhat different bait for different people. Things like candy for kids, sensuality for young adults, riches for the middle-aged, and power for the elderly. Now David's temptation and sin clearly illustrates the truth of this James passage. It isn't difficult to see how it all developed. What about us? Like David, we all struggle with sin. As the hymn goes, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We all have feet of clay. We nurse unclean thoughts. We say unkind things. And we sometimes engage in inappropriate behavior. I love what Pastor Damien Kyle says. He says some mornings he gets up and goes and looks into the mirror and then says to himself, I'll be fighting you all day, you creep. <laughs> Look, even good people fall, and we're all ultimately in the same boat, the SS guilty. We all have at least one story in our lives we wouldn't want published in our autobiography. As you may know, when I was serving the United Kingdom, I was the only white guy in an all-black church for about two years. And one of the best pieces of advice Pastor Larry Sams ever gave me was this. Brother Scotty, nobody is quite as holy as they look on Sunday mornings. The other great piece of advice I still carry with me to this day is, Brother Scotty, people be crazy. I can't tell you the times that has helped me in my ministry. 
And I also understand that some churches will actually drive you crazy. But uh, if you're new, that's an inside joke. Anyway, back to our lesson. How is sin birthed in our individual lives? Well, the exact same way a baby in the natural is. Look at our James passage again. In verse 14, first there is what? There is a desire. And this leads to the actual act of conception. Well, what comes next? The actual birthing process and eventually, at the end of life, death. But what I want us to see is that sin is always progressive in nature. A glance can turn into a look, which left unchecked can lead to lust, and then finally to action. Please keep in mind there's always a later aspect when it comes to sin. There are always consequences of some kind that will follow our sinful behavior. And those consequences, once set in motion, cannot be stopped. It may take a while, and we may think that we're getting away with it, but we are only fooling ourselves. I used this illustration several years ago, but I know of none better to drive this point home. Imagine you're out on a hot day, and you decide that you would like to have an ice-cold soda. So you go to this machine, and it says for a dollar and 25 cents, it will give you a soda. As a side note, that is outrageously high. The last time I used this illustration, it was only a dollar. But these are issues I'm working through. Anyway, if you put a quarter and push the button on that machine, nothing at all is going to happen. You can put in your second, your third, and your fourth quarter, and each time push the button, and nothing happens. There are still no consequences to your actions. But when you put in that fifth and final quarter and you press that button, you have now set off a series of events inside that machine that you have absolutely no control over. If you will, that machine is about to birth a soda. That is exactly how it is with sin. We may keep putting quarters into a specific sin and have no observable consequences, but there will come a time when what we have done will come to fruition in our lives. Listen to the words of one commentator. It's a little lengthy, but well worth our time. He writes, Perhaps you've always wanted to skydive, but the thought scared you too much to try it. That is, until you met someone who had made over 100 jumps. He talked you into it by explaining how safe it was. His enthusiasm was contagious. He spoke of the freedom of falling through the air, the adrenaline rush, the unspeakable exhilaration. Now you're standing on the edge of a plane looking down on the earth far, far below. Everything has been checked and double-checked. You remind yourself that it's safer than driving on a freeway, a thought that gives you some courage. Plus, modern parachutes are state-of-the-art. Besides, there's also a backup chute. Still, your heart is beating 
with apprehension. But suddenly you jump. You have trained so much for this moment, you instinctively spread your hands and legs. The speed is unbelievable. The power of the air forcing itself against your body is incredible. It's just like a dream. You are defying gravity, racing through the air at more than 120 miles per hour. The earth is now coming closer. All normal sense of time has been lost. Speed, thrust of air, unspeakable joy is all that you know. You glance at the altimeter on your wrist. Only another 10 seconds and you will pull the cord and feel the jolt of the parachute. All that you have been told was indeed true. The adrenaline rush is like nothing you have ever experienced in your entire life. If only it could just last a little bit longer. Reluctantly, you pull the cord. It opens, but there is no jolt. You tilt your head back to see a horrifying sight. The parachute has twisted and is trailing like a flapping streamer. Your heart races with fear, pounding in your chest. Your eyes bulge in terror. Your chest heaves as you gasp for air. You try to keep a clear mind and remember your training, so you pull the second cord. Nothing happens. You pull again, harder. Still nothing. Your throat lets out a scream, a groan of panic. Your, your heart is pounding so hard, you think your chest is going to burst. Sweat breaks through your skin. A thousand thoughts speed through your mind. Your family and your fate. What a fool I was to think I could defy gravity. Now a merciless law waits for the impact. The ground accelerates towards you. No words can describe the terror that is now gripping your heart. One word stands alone to describe how you feel about what you have done. One word screams to the corridors of your mind as the earth races towards you, as death readies to embrace you. One word. A word that you have never truly understood until this moment. That terrible word is remorse. He then makes this application. The world, the flesh, and the devil whisper to you about how pleasurable sin is. That God isn't angry at sin. After all, God is a God of love. And so it is safe to jump into the arms of iniquity and abandon yourself to a free fall through that vast domain. You go where angels fear to tread but it is worth it. The rush is everything sin promised. You drink in iniquity like water. You love the darkness. Conscience speaks again and again, but you ignore its warning. I've told you before about Susanna Wesley's definition of sin, but I believe it bears repeating here. Susanna was the mother of Charles and John Wesley, and they once asked her, what is sin? Her reply was very insightful. She said, whatever weakens your reason 
impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off the relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, that for you is sin. That's a pretty good definition. Sin is what distracts us from God. It is that which becomes so compelling to us that we subordinate God to that particular sin. And with both sin and pride, to understand it, all you have to do is to take the middle letter of each word and exalt it. The letter I. Me, me, me. It's all about what I want, and I don't care what I have to do or who I have to hurt to fulfill my desires. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Temptation described what happened in David's life when he threw caution to the wind and allowed his desire to take over. He writes, At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God, but listen to this, but with the forgetfulness of God. He writes, the lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. And the powers of clear discrimination of decision are now taken from us. Listen to me. When David laid aside his armor, he took the first step towards moral defeat. And the same principle applies to believers today. Without the helmet of salvation, we won't think like saved people. And without the breastplate of righteousness, we will have nothing to protect our heart. And lacking the girdle of truth, we easily believe lies like we can get away with this. And without the sword of the word and the shield of faith, we are helpless before the enemy. And without prayer, we have absolutely no, no power because we will never rise above our prayer life. As for the shoes of peace, David had walked in the midst of battles for the majority of his life. But he's going to find out he was safer on the battlefield than on the veranda of his house overlooking Bathsheba's bath. I want you to notice all the sending that has been going on here in chapter 11. In verse 1 we read, It happened in the spring of the year, at the times when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab with him and all Israel. In verse 3 we, we read, So David sent and inquired about the woman. Now in verse 4, then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now look at verse 5. Now it's Bathsheba's turn to send. And she sent and told David, I am with child. These are the only recorded words of Bathsheba in the whole episode. But they are words that David did not want to hear. You can paraphrase her brief message by this. David, the next step is yours. The news from Bathsheba shatters the illusion 
that David was in control of events. David had put in his fifth quarter and pressed the button, and now the consequences are going to begin. When David got that news, he had a decision to make. He could take one of only two courses. He could openly confess his wrongdoing before God and the nation and come clean, or he could go the route of deception and hypocrisy and try to cover everything up. We all know what he should have done, and we all know what he did. And David's unfaithfulness here is going to have lasting impact on the effects of his family. That affair with Bathsheba, along with his multiple marriages, is going to create a family environment that bred bitterness, distrust, brokenness, and conflict. Within his own family, there's now going to be rape and murder. And his son Absalom will stage a rebellion to overthrow the throne. Now that's a story that may make a good soap opera, but it's a terrible example of what a family should be. You may be thinking, yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago. Surely we have evolved into a greater morality by now. Let me read you an article dated March 29, 2018. That's just a little over a month ago. Nashville, Tennessee. The president and chief executive of the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee has resigned following a morally inappropriate relationship. Frank Page initially announced Monday he was retiring, but on Tuesday, the 65-year-old released a statement saying he was resigning because of a personal failing. He said he first announced his retirement without explanation because he wanted to protect his family. Page says he hopes to rebuild the trust of his wife and two daughters. Details about the relationship were not released. In a statement, Executive Committee Chairman Stephen Rummett says the group is committed to providing the Page family spiritual and emotional support. In his role on the committee, Page oversaw a budget of nearly $200 million and played a key role in coordinating the convention's national ministries. So here we see a 65-year-old man reaping what he has sown. Think about how sad that is. Decades of ministry and service has now been tarnished, and his family will now bear the shame and the pain of his sin. That's why I sincerely pray that God would remove me from this earth where I would ever bring shame upon his kingdom or upon this church. So if I'm ever crossing the street and get hit by a turnip truck, you'll know what happened. Sometimes I hear people say that we need to change our thinking about the Bible to make it more relevant. Let me assure you, the Bible standing all by itself is the most relevant book you will ever read. And it doesn't matter what century that you read it in. Why? Because both sin and grace never change. One will kill you while the other gives you life. Look at verse 6. Then David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. 
and how the war was pro- how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. Go down to your house and wash your feet. That sounds like something your mother would say, doesn't it? Now, did Uriah just have a bad case of funky feet? No. The phrase, wash your feet, was a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And being the tactician that he was, David immediately devised a plan to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. He called Uriah home from the battlefield and gave him some food for the romantic evening. And he hoped that the brave soldier would go home and just spend some time with his wife. So David says, go home and spend some time with your wife. And here's some chicken wings and, you know, what, dip, I guess. I don't know. That's in the original Hebrew, though, if you want to look that up later. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. A true soldier, Uriah gently rebukes the king for suggesting that one of his own soldiers put personal pleasure ahead of duty, especially when their fellow soldiers were out in the field, and even the ark of God was in a tent. So Uriah says, why should I go home and enjoy my wife? Now, when David took Bathsheba, he thought he could just eat, wipe his mouth, and move on. But things aren't working out the way that he thought. Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And that evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to the house. So during this meal, David passed Uriah the cup so many different times that Uriah became drunk. Now David is probably thinking, this should work. After all, he was trusting in the sex drive of the equivalent of a drunken sailor. But David sought to get Uriah drunk because he knew, as the devil does, that alcohol lowers the resistance of moral fortitude. You are a wise person if you realize the danger of alcohol. I don't know about you, but I have a hard enough time thinking right even when I'm sober. I don't need to make it any harder on myself. Plus, with a lot of people, it can be said, instant jerk, just add alcohol. But Uriah drunk proved to be a better man at this point than David sober. For once again he refused to go home. Verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. This man Uriah had such integrity that David knew he wouldn't open that letter. 
David is having Uriah carry his own execution order. That is just unbelievably brutal. It's like when my mother would finally get tired of me being mean little Billy. And she would tell me to go get her a switch off of a tree to beat me with. Now I realize that that type of biblical discipline is very unpopular today. But I can also tell you we never had to worry about 7th graders getting pregnant or kids bringing guns to school. But that's a different sermon. But rather than accept his plan has failed, David goes to the next level. He goes all mafia on the guy. If you can't convince him nicely, then just kill him. This is one of the most despicable, vicious things anyone has ever done to another person. Realizing Uriah still didn't take the bait, David came up with plan B. So here we see David not only committing adultery, but now God is eventually going to charge him with the murder of Uriah. Now remember, David was a man after God's own heart, a man who was singularly held up in the Old Testament as one of the greatest men of faith who ever lived. So what's going on? It all started out seemingly so simple. He neglected his duty to go to battle. Then his eyes wandered and his curiosity was aroused. Then he committed adultery, and now he's about to commit murder. David is stumbling badly at this point. But that's the way that sin is in a human life. Sin has a sneaky way of compounding itself. It started out as, wow, she's very pretty. It ends with, I must find a way to kill her husband. Now David would not have started at that last point, and neither would any of us. But before you know it, when it comes to sinful things, you're more deeply involved in it than you ever thought you possibly could be. That is why it is absolutely essential not to give in at that first point of temptation. You cannot control the course of your destiny once you allow yourself to begin to flirt with sin. It will capture you. It will ensnare you, and ultimately, it will destroy you. David once killed giants, and now the giant of lust is about to kill him. I haven't came across anyone who was able to break so many of the Ten Commandments in one sitting. Except Moses, of course. He broke all Ten Commandments at once. You'll laugh later. As far as I can make out, David managed to break at least four of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. If David couldn't entice Uriah to go home, he would have to get him out of the way so he could marry Uriah's widow. And the sooner that they married, the better the scheme would work. David thought he was deceiving everybody, but he was only deceiving himself. He thought he could escape guilt, when all the while he is only adding to his guilt. And he will not escape God's judgment, and neither will we. If you are the king, 
David has now set up a banquet of his own consequences. So if we learn one thing this morning, it's that covering up sin can do more damage than the sin that we are trying to cover up. The best thing that we can do is to always come clean with the Lord. Because every time we cover up instead of coming clean, we're allowing our past to do more damage to our future. So what happens next? Come back next week to find out. And Father, I pray you would take the things that we have learned this morning. We don't want to be like James 1.22, Lord, and just learning more Bible facts and not putting them into practice. We want to put into practice the things you have put into our hearts and to our lives this morning. I pray you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit illumination and help us do that. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion. Ask Pastor John to come up. What we'll do is ask you to please come up and take the elements and take them back to your seat, and then we'll take them together.